Welcome back to the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Kanakin. Our guest today is Mr. Nick Brazo. Nick is a firearms and tactics expert. He is the tactical team trainer for Canada's second largest municipal police service, lead instructor for the unit's firearms program, a tactical high angle and sniper instructor, and a close protection subject matter expert. Not only can Nick walk the walk, but he can also talk the talk. Nick has a bachelor's degree in political science and sociology and a graduate's degree in risk management. Today, we're going to talk about the difference in firearms training and qualifications, the challenges that instructors have um, and the challenges that agencies have when it comes to putting together these programs. If you guys are ready, I'm excited. Let's bring Nick on. Let's get this interview going and welcome Nick to the Tactical Breakdown. Okay. Well, hey, Nick, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking the time to come out and speak with us. I've, uh, I kind of introed you a little bit here. So why don't, uh, why don't you take a minute and explain to everybody kind of who you are, what you do and uh, what we're going to be talking about. Right. Well, thanks for having me aboard, uh, Adam. So basically I've got a, uh, I've got a 25 year law enforcement career last 15 on SWAT. Uh, before that I was, uh, I was working plain clothes, uh, UC, undercover uh, uh, investigations. And uh, so for the last 15 uh, on a team, and right now I'm a uh, one of the members of the training cell uh, for that tactical team, which is the part of the second largest uh, municipal force in Canada. So that's, that's what I'm doing right now. Specialties, uh, uh, sniping. I'm a sniping instructor and uh, basically a lead instructor for the firearms program as well. Uh, close protection, SME, and um, I run the high angle uh, tactical side of uh, side of the house as well. Um, also, prior to that, well, uh, I was military, long, uh, military uh, Canadian forces, uh, reserves for 25, uh, 25 years, a little more than that. And, uh, well, basically infantry, small arms instructor, uh, rappel master, that sort of stuff. Uh, so a lot of my, uh, my training and, uh, my experience on the, uh, small arms side, uh, well started there. And, uh, parallel to that, well, I work for one of the largest, uh, uh farms training academies in the U S as a contract instructor. That's amazing. Obviously, there's you're going to have a wealth of knowledge and experience um, that you can share and touch on today. So I really appreciate you taking the time. I know how busy you are, um, and so let's get into it. You and I had spoken earlier when we, when we first started talking. Our conversation went right almost into firearms training programs and the effectiveness of them, um, the difference between training and qualifications. That's something that we wanted to talk on today. So as far as firearms training, let's. Lay it out. Let's start from the very beginning. What are some of the main differences between qualifications in firearms and actual firearms training programs? Well, qualifications, obviously, we're talking about either law enforcement or our private agency. They may have quals as well. Uh, military certainly have qualifications. Uh, we're, we're talking about courses of fire here. So uh, a qual is uh, a picture of a basic capability of the individuals that you're training. So it's, uh, it's, it's a picture. That's what it is. So it it doesn't mean that it's the movie of everything they can do, but it's because in a qual, you can only, uh, 
do certain amounts of drills. You, you don't spend a day doing calls usually. So a lot of times it's a course of fire, maybe, you know, 50 rounds. Because Why 50 rounds? A lot of times because it's a box of ammo for a handgun. So, so that's how the quals will be put together most of the time. And they will try to encompass several things, you know, I work on barricades, uh, uh, one hand drills, uh, two hands, some speed, some reloads and, and stuff like that. So you try to cover most things in a qualification, but you can't cover everything. And there's certainly very little of the things you might see in training, which we'll, we'll talk about in a minute, but you know, uh, communications, uh, movement there might be a bit of movement but not that much there's not so much teamwork it's an individual course of fire so uh, because you want to grade people and you want to give them a pass or fail to be able to say okay they met the standard now we may we may look at that and say yeah that's ridiculous it's not training and this and that it's just a administrative but at the same time there are if you realize that it's not training you're ahead of the game to start with so but it it has its place and the place is to yes establish a certain standard um, but you know obviously as i said you can't do everything in a qual but there's a certain standard that's attained and and it's also a question of record keeping see okay who fired this year and who did their qual so in my agency there's five thousand officers so if five thousand you need to keep track of who's doing what and who you know, who passed or qual, who did a qual. You don't want to end up at the, the end of, you know, two, three years saying, okay, so-and-so, we, we've never seen him on her on the range. So there's a record-keeping side and there's a legal survival side. A lot of times, it, if you end up in an officer-involved shooting, it will be examined at the very least. And one of the first questions is, okay, did he qualify the people investigating this don't necessarily know the all the details of, of firearms training and which technique is better or not. They're not necessarily experts in that. They might ask the opinion of experts, but they are usually not experts. They're investigators. So they will want to know, okay, did you go through a course of fire this year or whatever the standard is? Is it twice a year or whatever? And if you did and if you passed... Well, that's a good plus for you on your legal survival. As an officer, I'm interested in doing my qual. It's important to me to do the qual. Even if I don't feel that the qual is all encompassing as far as training, because it's not training, but just for those things, especially legal survival, it's important. It's also the place where you, you can see if there are any problems with the people that you're training, if they have trouble passing quals, uh, maybe it's, you know, new glasses, problems, eyesight or whatever, or, you know, so, so you may, uh, it, it may lift a flag and you may address maybe uh, further training or look for further training because of that. So that's, that's the qual side. So as I said, it doesn't cover all the skills and it doesn't replace training. I think it's really good to, to, for anybody listening here right now, um, if you're unfamiliar with firearms training and you know, you may hear some terminology you don't understand. I think a good way to explain this to people who are just learning about this would be if you think about school, training is kind of what you're all the, the work that you do throughout the year and your qualification would kind of be like your final exam. 
That's right. It's what says they understand what you've learned. And that goes back to what you were saying was whether it's the agency organization that you work for, it's kind of the seal of approval saying, okay, they actually know enough that meets our standards so that they can actually take their firearm out into the field. Is that accurate? Yeah, that, that's that's right on, Adam. And, uh, you know, there are good quals and not, not so good quals as well. You know, I, when you put a qualification together, you need you need to really think it out. And, you know, sometimes what happens is that there's 50 rounds, for example, 50 rounds to be shot. And, you know, okay, we've shot 48. And, okay, where can we put those last two rounds? And, you know, everything has to make sense or be as applicable as possible. So you can you can build a qualification that is as realistic as possible. You know, even if you have uh, several hundred officers, you need to to process through qualifications. You know, you can build it so it makes sense as well. But but it's not going to replace training, as we said. I think one of the big things you touched on there too, um, what you were saying, if depending on the timings between their qualifications, whether they do annual or biannual requalifications, I think it also cut plays into effect the amount of training time that they have in between those qualifications. And I think that's probably something that you're passionate about is making sure guys actually get some range time in other than that once or twice a year. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's like if you wanted to train for a marathon and you only ran once and, and you try to run a, you know, a 42K, you know, a few days before or, or a 10K or whatever. I mean, it's like any kind of training or any kind of skill. You're best off doing it often, you know, for a shorter period of time, but quality training than to go all out stupid, you know, once uh, once a year and then expect to have incredible results. So uh, it's not, you know, with firearms, it's it's the same thing. It's nothing new. But then then comes that that the somber skies of, well, OK, uh, how many people do we need to to train, how much money do we have? Do we have access to ranges, so on and so forth? And usually that's that's where the sand in, in, in a machine comes in, you know, and that's that's when people argue or administrators will say, Yeah, well, that's a lot of money. But at the same time, you know, firearms trainers need to uh need to wave that that flag of liability and so that's a bit of a boogeyman, but it's reality. So First and foremost, you want to train people, uh, whether they be LE security or, or military, to survive encounters and to be able to protect the people that are there to protect. That's the first thing. But the legal survival afterwards and, and the liability as well for the agencies, there's a way of uh, putting a bit of uh, emphasis on that and saying, look, we need to we need to train so many hours a year or uh, you know, twice a year to be able to have our officers trained enough so that if something happens, it won't be uh, demonstrated that that there's negligence as far as the uh, the powers that be that that they didn't want to put all the money or the resources to train. So, I think that's a great point. And and one of the things that kind of jumped to the forefront of my mind, you were talking about you know the post incident where it comes to the legal, the liability on the officer and on the agency side of things. We've seen in the past, and not not incidents where the officers actually engaged, but the incidences in which they did not because they were afraid of the repercussions because maybe they didn't have the amount of time in that they were comfortable 
um, in that situation. Have you have you seen that kind of situation play out before? Well, you know, it's it's uh, it's tough to to be the uh, you know the the guy in the back bench saying yeah they should have shot not shot. Uh, you know, I mean, it's uh, it is a personal decision when when an officer, for example, a police officer takes takes that shot if they have the ability or or the conditions were there or you know there's there's so many there are so many factors i wouldn't be the one to to blame anybody for taking or not taking the shot uh, certainly you can say well it would have been better to take the shot but at the same time if you were in that situation you would need to actually you would need to be in that situation to be able to take that decision and comment on it so so i haven't seen that but certainly the more training you have, uh, realistic training, the more tools you have in that toolbox we always talk about to be able to act when you need to act. So you may want to act but not have the tools, and, and that's a situation we don't want to be in. We want to have people prepared, and, and then the decision-making part, then it, that's up to them, but they have the skills to face most situations. And that's a great lead into when we're talking about tools in the toolbox. And when you're talking from a training perspective about building out these training programs to kind of encompass all these different things that officers are going to need in the fields, what, in your opinion, constitutes an effective training program? And how do you how do you go about building one of those programs? Well, the first thing is to know your needs and your reality. So you can go around, read all the books and you can certainly give you it will give you an idea. But. At the same time, it's like buying kit. You need to know what, what the need is first. So what's your reality? Uh, before I build a program, I need to, to know, okay, are, are my people or are the people use, uh, using those skills, will they be in uh, extreme cold weather? Will it be, uh, you know, are, are we in a countryside where there, there's long distances or, or is it, you know, urban? Is it, uh, so you need to look at the environment and you need to look at uh, your needs, you know, but without overcomplicating basically uh, gunfights, because I think there's a tendency to overcomplicate things as well. So, so I try to stay away from that. It's not, uh, it's not brain surgery. We're not trying to land some, some thing on Mars, but we need to look at our, our needs and our reality. That's the first thing. Now, the program first off needs to be challenging, attainable, realistic, and specific. So that's the CARS acronym. So challenging, attainable, realistic, and specific. So if it meets those criterias, because you did a proper analysis of your reality and your context, then your your goal setting should should be along those lines, and then it should be scalable. For example, uh, if you're a law enforcement uh, trainer, are you teaching brand new people? Are you teaching seasoned officers? Are you teaching people have been in a long time and they're sort of you know sort of I uh, have to be brought back into it because they, they've been administrative for a long time you know, and just doing qualifications. Are you training new SWAT officers? Are you training uh, experienced SWAT officers? So there's no uh, one size fits all. I think you obviously the best is to have the same, you know, the same level of students in your class. Otherwise you run into some problems. You'll have, 
You know, if you have a, you know, a seasoned SWAT officer with a novice uh, patrolman and investigator hasn't shot in a while, it's going to be tough to keep everybody interested. You know, the SWAT guy, if you make it too easy, he's going to be bored. The new guy, if you make it too challenging or there might be safety issues because you're trying to go high speed on, on them, you know, so. So that's a different story, but trying to keep your people, uh, your groups homogenous, then you make it scalable. Your program can be given to different types of people to meet their needs. And then you have a choice of live fire, which is, which is what most people will do. They'll do the live fire part. But at the same time, try to integrate force on force and simulator training if you have a simulator in your agency or your your company or or whatnot. So those, I would say, uh, just doing a live fire, if we go into this subject, just doing a live fire in a square range will bring you, you know, all the uh, all the, the feedback of the firearm and, and, you know, the blast, the noise, and everything else, all the, the, the proper manipulations. But as we know, well, you won't get the force on force side of things. You won't, you're going to have, unless you have, an enormous amount of money or resources to get, uh, you know, ele- some high-speed electronic targets or mannequins. But usually you'll be on a flat range and you'll try to make it as realistic as possible because you, you're not shooting, you know, moving and, you know, moving targets and people shooting back at you. So you need to go to the force-on-force thing as well. So then you move to the force-on-force thing and that's good. But then, you know, the simulator training, if you have one, can can bring you into the decision-making aspect of the training because you can teach a monkey to shoot, but uh, the monkey won't know when to shoot. So that's that's the difference between us and the monkeys. So you can know how to shoot, and that's all good and fine, but when to shoot, that's, that's a different story. We need to work on that. So to sum it up, so you need a, a proper evaluation of your needs, uh, your reality, and also the goal setting, uh, following a principle of, uh, of cars, a scalable program, uh, trying to keep groups homogenous, but at the same time, you can, you can tune it to your audience and, uh, you need to mix it up to be able to put everything together because it's combat. So combat isn't just defensive tactics. It isn't just shooting. It m- might start with a, with a shot or a punch or a takedown or, and, and obviously all of that, there's decision-making in there. So it needs to be integrated. With saying that, what has been your experience with an agency's or organization's ability to adapt to new types of training, um, whether it be force on force, so using things like simunition or stress vests, or even you know adapting and using new tactics that have been brought back from like special operators overseas when it comes to you know the guys that are doing you know they're involved in this kind of stuff all the time and they're bringing back all this knowledge and experience from combat what is what has been your experience about taking that new information and being able to build it into the current training program obviously learning from everybody else's experience and and learning certainly learning from other people's mistakes is better than learning from your own even so so I'm always trying to do that but there there is one there is one thing there is you need to look at okay who are we learning this from and why do they do the things they do and whether it's a you know a special operations community uh, uh 
another agency, a law enforcement agency, whether it's SWAT somewhere or whatnot, I think we need to look at it with a critical eye. And this is not saying, you know, not, uh, you know, not thinking that it applies to us, but it's not because it's used by so-and-so special forces in Yemen or whatever, that it's necessarily applicable in the streets of X city. So the rules of engagement, you know, may be different and that may be the thing that makes that technique or tactic unapplicable. So we need to look at that first. Does it does it fill a void? Does does it uh, solve a problem? Is there a problem? It's like the parallel with gear is good. You know, gear people go go on gear crazy, and they'll buy a semi trailer full of plastic pink flamingos because they were on special, only to come back to their apartment and wonder where they're going to put them. And then they say, "Okay, I need to shop for a house." Right. So that's the type of thing you're like, "Okay, does it fill a need?" What is the problem here? And um, I've had a chance to, to train and speak with a lot of special forces, uh, both uh, both Canadian and foreign. And one of the in- very interesting approaches that, that they had, some of the units had anyways, was everything we do has a reason. And we do it for a reason. And we know why. So, so I think that philosophy, whether it comes from anybody – is uh, an interesting one to me and one I take to heart because that's what we need to look at first. Okay, why do we do what we do? So we need to reevaluate our training program, our tactics, our our techniques, our procedures. And then when other techniques uh, come to our ear and we say, okay, these guys use this. Okay, why do you use it? And which context do you use it? And okay, and what are the 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 bad points or, or what are the drawbacks uh, of that technique you know maybe they use that uh, that tactic or that technique because they have all this air power and and you know intelligence or support whatever maybe your department or your company if you're in a security company maybe you don't have that so so therefore you you may take parts of that idea but maybe not uh, all of it but I, I welcome it. I think it's we need to to learn from from those experiences and draw the uh, the uh, what's applicable and look at if it's if it's good for us. And if it is, then you test it. And if it it goes through the test, well, then you can you can apply it, knowing you know what it's there for and and the, uh, the things you may watch out for. You know when it's know when it's applicable and what it isn't. I think that's a an awesome way to look at it. And for any of the anybody listening who's, you know, a trainer, it does and we're not necess- and this doesn't necessarily have to mean you're a firearms instructor, because I don't have a ton of the firearms training experience and I kind of lean back more on my um defensive tactics type stuff and hand to hand. You have to look at the context of what you're training in. And that's exactly what you you just explained is that if you can draw the parallel to, you know, uh, a defensive tactics program. There's too many times where you see, and I was, I, I did this myself when I first started, you have your own experience and your own knowledge. And there's a great thing that we have out there, a great resource that we call the internet and especially YouTube. And I'm sure you've seen this before in, in classes and courses that you've run where somebody says, Hey, I saw this on, I, you know, I saw this video of a guy doing this. Can we try it? And, and you're right. It's, you have to look at the complete context of where they're getting that information and where that's coming from. Cause there's too many times where, you know, a guy may be an, 
excellent, excellent boxer or a jujitsu practitioner or something like that. And they try to bring in a very technical skill to a basic defensive tactics program. And even though the skill may work for them in, in the field, that doesn't mean it's going to be applicable to everybody. And when you're talking about the context of building out a training program that has to be somewhat standardized to your entire agency, whether it be hand-to-hand firearms or anything else, you have to look at the context of where you're getting the information and is it applicable to what we're doing? Because if it's not, even though it may look really cool on video, it's not going to be useful to us in the field. Yeah, exactly. And and how much training will you be able to give uh, your people on on this technique or tactic? Is it realistic to think that we can put this in in, uh, in operation or, or the amount of time we have or the resources we have. That's the other thing. It might be sexy and it might be, oh yeah, it'd be great if we had that capability. But you need to look at it in a, in a realistic way, in a scientific way, you know, just, just a facts type of thing. Can we bring our people up to speed enough on these techniques so that they're usable and they're and they're safe for them and and the people that are there to protect. So, so if the answer is well, no, not really. So look at the consequences. Is it okay? Is it better for them to have some of the knowledge and, and they can still, in certain circumstances where the chips are down, do the best they can with what they have and will still be winning? Maybe, or is it something like no? If they try to use this, um, you know, it's going to be dangerous for them or somebody else. So, uh, so those, those are things you need to look at as well, in my opinion. And, uh, so how much training time you're going to put into it uh, to, to make it applicable. We're not even talking about, okay, do we have the resources as far as, you know, gear or, or support or whatnot. And the other thing, as you're talking about defensive tactics or, or actually martial arts, a lot of times what happens is that you'll have the farms guys or, or guys or girls our farms people and then the the DT people they're, they're you know they enjoy all the putting people into pretzels thing so so they they'll be like oh yeah well close up you know I'll do this and I'll do that and this is what, what we're going to teach our people and the farms guy will say yeah close up we can do close uh, super close quarter shooting when in fact as I mentioned before I think it's it's all integrated. There's no portion of the fight you're going to say, okay, dude, we're going to go to the farm side. Okay. Or we're going to, okay, now we're just going to do defensive tactics or just going to do martial arts or, you know, get ready. I'm going to slap you. I won't be shooting it. So there's no, that's not choreographed. It, it could be anything at any time. So our, uh, the weakness in a lot of the programs is that the defensive tactics people don't necessarily talk to the farms people you know, share the, share the information and say, okay, look, if it's really up close, we won't have time to use the farm. Let's go to defensive tactics. And we're talking about building a program because here we are talking about a firearms program. If we're talking about a combatives program as a whole, we need to stop working in silo and we need to say, okay, let's get all the subject matter experts here because you can't be an expert in everything. And then you say, okay, what are our latest firearms techniques? What are our latest uh, defensive tactic techniques? Okay, what do we do in this situation? What's the best uh, best course of action in this other situation? Is it the firearms side of things, we may have a stoppage, okay? Maybe the defensive tactics guy will say, okay, well, look at that distance. I wouldn't try to 
clear your stoppage or show me how long it would be to clear your stoppage or do what you need to do, a transition from a rifle to a pistol, for example. And, and maybe the conclusion will be, okay, let's go, let's go hands on then. So it's all, it's all one big, it's one big production. It's one big show. It's not, it's not uh, compartmentalized as, as unfortunately sometimes we tend to see it because what we have in our toolbox is a hammer. So if I have a hammer, as the saying goes, I'll have a tendency to see all the problems as nails. So whether it be a screw or a nail or a six, uh, three inch nail, I'll just use the hammer. Whereas someone else with a screwdriver will do the opposite. So we need to get all the tools together and say, okay, if we're building a program, what's the best course of action? And because once you start teaching people, you're influencing generations of, of your personnel. And if you show the wrong stuff or it's interpreted wrong, uh, then going back and seeing them again and trying to correct that is like trying to iron out a shirt that you've been ironing, you know, the wrong way for, for maybe a few years. And then you need a lot of steam and a lot of water to try to get that through. And that means time and effort. And maybe you don't have that time to take all your people again and say, okay, look, there we need to correct this. And I know you've been doing this for years, but sometimes you need to do it. You don't have a choice. I think you, you said the one word there that kind of every instructor, it doesn't matter what your specialty is, but time. We all wish we had more time. You know, with more time, we can do more things and get more iterations in. And that's always something that every instructor is fighting with to get. And I think you'll agree with that. Oh, definitely. You know, that's when... Uh, you know, I lift my hat, my, my hat's off to, to all the trainers that that basically are doing the, uh, what I call the sausage machine. I mean, they're, they're just day after day, they're seeing new people and it's like, okay, let's go. And and I know that feeling and it's a feeling of, man, I have so much I want to, to give to them and, you know, I want to give them all the tools. I open up your toolbox, here you go. And at the same time, it's overload. You know, it's, you wouldn't be able to do that anyway. The human being will only accept so much data as far as RAM goes. It'll be lost. Uh, some, most of it will be lost on them. So it's a building block. But if you don't see them again, then it's like, okay, see them in a year maybe. Or specialized units, you, we're lucky in a sense that we'll see it's the same people it's a building block approach. And we actually build. It's not just a question of saying, okay, we started building. But then when I see them again, I need to, to do a refresher because it's been so long. No, it's okay. You know what we've seen last time? Here we go. Let's move forward. And then you see the progression and you can build on that. And if you need to correct something, well, it's a bit easier because you're like, okay, guys, I know two years ago I told you, you know, this was the best technique since sliced bread. But now, okay, because lessons learned. We studied this and we need to change this. So it's easier to change things when you see your people regularly. Uh, so that's the other aspect of, of, of time. You know, more, the more time you have, obviously, it's, it's a bonus. So as an instructor for an agency, what are some skills or what are some ways that they have such a limited time with students or with anybody in their agency and they only have a set number of hours are there any types of skills or tips that you can kind of give to allow them to to create some of that variation in their training so it's not just redundancy year after year? I mean, the first thing is train your uh, the audience according to their level. 
Oh, that's obvious. We we spoke about that earlier on. And then it's sit down and think of uh, think of the training program. It, anybody can say, any instructor can say, okay, well, look, uh, you know, things been hectic. Uh, I'll just get them to shoot. Uh, oh, this drill and that drill. And uh, I think we need to look at a, a training session and say, okay, how much time do I have? And I need to maximize that time. So in that meaning, you need to look at, okay, when I set up my training, do, am I wasting time doing this transition to, from, for example, steel targets to paper targets? The logistics side of it for building a, a good practice session is important. And if you're not too experienced in it, then, you know, I read up on it, uh, get close to other instructors and say, okay, look, I want to put a, does this make sense? Putting this drill after this drill? Is it a logical sequence? Logistically, am I wasting a lot of time doing this? Okay, that's that's one of the first things. So that's trying to buy you time to, to get them trained. Then with the time you have, okay, what are the drills that I want them to do that will, will be the bonus drills? What's what's uh, the objective of my training? Obviously, that's the first the first question. Let's say it's okay, it's manipulation. So I want to maximize manipulations. I want to do drills. They don't fire, you know, 15, 15 round mags one after the other. I want them to do, for example, uh, two reload, two on a handgun. So I'll set it up so they'll do maximum manipulations. And because the objective is not just the shooting. Yes, shooting is important. The accuracy is going to be in there. Okay. And that, that's going to be an important factor but I want to maximize manipulations. If it's weapon transition from rifle to pistol, then I'll do drills. Well, they fire a couple of rounds from the rifle, transition to pistol, reload the rifle. They're going to do a whole bunch of manipulations within you know a few rounds. And that will maximize my practice because I know that's the objective. That's the weak point uh, training that I want to, to implement there. I want to get them up to speed on that because that's the focus. The other thing also is setting up my drills, uh, going back to drills, if I set up a whole, uh, you know, hop, skip and jump course of fire that only one person can do at a time because of safety reasons, well, then in a day, they might shoot, you know, one iteration of it or maybe two. And that's it because I set up in a way that, yeah, it's interesting. It's cool. It's high speed. You know, you do all the SWAT rolls and all that stuff that you see in the movies, but everybody else is is just sitting around waiting for their turn. So maybe the best best idea is say, well, I want a course of fire that they they do a you know they do different stages. Maybe I can work my plateaus and say, okay, it's a round robin. I have enough personnel. I can run it so everybody's busy all the time, learning something, practicing confirming what they just did. I'm so glad you said that. That was one of the first things that we were taught when we, when we did our RSO course was always have, always have them be busy. And exactly what you said, a round Robin format works great where, you know, if someone's going live on the range um, and you're in three groups, then one group is either doing weapons manipulations, they're doing drills, you know, they're doing stoppages, whatever it is, but they're always keeping busy and you're maximizing that small amount of time that you do have. You know, having a, 
forces background. I know the uh, I know that it, keeping pe- people busy sometimes equals just uh, keeping busy doing anything. But obviously, uh, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice usually does. So every drill or every step you want them to to, to accomplish. Well, it has to be, it has to have a goal. It has to have a goal and be measurable and interesting as well. We, we need to keep it, keep it fun because, because it is, it, it can be fun. You know, it's not, it is work. It's serious, but we can have a good time doing it. So the, the games approach is a big, big, uh, is a big concept in my book where People stop stop thinking that they're just in a class and they're, they're, they're really having a good time. And the only thing you need to do is be so, sort of a moderator and make sure that okay, we keep the focus that that this is this is serious. But but people challenge themselves and they they want to go faster or faster or or do the drill better than the first the the guy next to them. That makes for a challenging uh, a challenging training. Yes, keeping people busy, but busy at something that is uh, applicable and that will bring us to our, our goal of making ourselves better and ready. Yeah, I love the practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. I think that's one of the best quotes I've heard this year. That's fantastic. I'd be super happy uh, to do another show here with you where we go down the rabbit hole on on the different types of skill sets and training tactics, techniques that guys can use on the range. But for the people that are listening, we know that some guys, you know, they're going to they're only going to go do what's required of them by their agency every year. And that's fine. That's their choice, their decision. But for the guys that and girls that like to go out and do things on their own, what are some basic skills, some basic practices, something that they can do to kind of increase their uh, capabilities with their firearm? Well, practice is uh, super important, obviously, whether it's live or it's dry. A lot of people underestimate dry fire. It was uh, it was uh, in vogue years and years ago, you know, maybe 30 years ago. I remember being on, on shooting teams with the military and dry fire was a big thing. And then then everybody sort of, you know, stopped talking about it. And then, then you still see it now. People talk about, yeah, dry fire. You know, high-end competitors, IPSIC or whatnot, and I'll talk about their dry fire regimen and how that's important to them. So, so I think that's one of, one of the things that you can do, and you don't need a range to do it. So, the only thing you need to do is make sure you don't shoot the mirror in the house or or something like that. You know, so so safety is is a major major point there. You need to to be in a in a safe area with a safe gun and, and do your dry fire. But dry fire is definitely important. A lot of all, a lot of the, the stuff we're talking about are manipulations. So the draw, the reloads and whatnot, and all this can be done without being on the range. That's one of the things I would say for a shooter wants to get better, get a timer. If, if you, uh, if you don't have one and then look at, you know, uh, look at your times and look at what you're doing, your accuracy versus your time. Because that's that's what it is. It's If we're talking about a gunfight, it's like the, the old West. It's not just being accurate, but it's being fast and accurate. So the one who's fastest and most accurate will, will get the job done and survive. So if you're accurate but too slow, you're going to have a couple in the chest before you get time to do anything, right? And if you're super fast, but you're not accurate, 
Well, this lower guy, he's going to have the advantage anyways. So I would say uh, work on the fundamentals. So once once that is, is, you know, you have good trigger control, grip and sights and, and all that good stuff, and you're, you're accurate, you can get there and you're on paper and uh, regularly, then start putting challenges in there and start putting speed and measure it. And you'll see, you see uh, where your weak points are and you'll be able to do some weak point training then. So if your reloads are the weak point training in, in a sequence, you'll see that with a timer and you'll say, okay, now what I'll do, instead of doing a whole sequence, I will concentrate on just my reloads and maybe my dry fire practice. I will do a lot of reloading to make it nice, smooth and efficient. So, so that I save, you know, I, I save time. So, so, so that's it in, in a nutshell. It's, you know, there's so much to that, but to, to start with, just go out there and, and do some, training and think of what you're doing. Am I creating training scars or am I doing proper techniques and slowly build it up and and go and go faster and further and, you know, more accurate. That's, that's the objective really. You know what? It's funny. You had mentioned the wild West and it immediately brought back. um, There was a a video that caliber press put out. Kelly McCann did a, a series of videos about firearms training. And one of the stories he told specifically towards the training side of things was a story about Wild Bill Hickok and the amount of time that he spent and practicing his draws so that he was doing them correctly. And every time he had that muzzle control and everything was there every single time. And he'd do thousands of iterations of it. And he speaks to the point that quality of training dictates what result you're going to get in the field. Yeah, you're going to, it is said that you're going to lose about 30% of your skills in, in a firefight. So if you're complacent about your skills, whether it's accuracy or speed, well, you know, it's in Murphy's laws of combat. If anything can go wrong, it will. So you need to, you know, you need to be the best you can be in training because there's there's a lot of chances you're, you're not going to be the best you know, you're not going to have your best day during during that situation, especially if you're reactive, which is usually what happens with law enforcement. You're you're reacting to to whatever is happening in front of you. You're not just going down and being uh, being offensive. So so before you do you, that, OODA loop happens, and you're able to take that decision and act. There is few a few seconds gone by, or you know, uh, hundreds of seconds going by. And you need to compensate for that and and uh, defend yourself or someone else. So no, that's those are that's a very good uh, good story on that side of the house. And you know, uh, Larry Vickers, uh, he uh, he quote he uses this quote quite a bit, and it's uh, speed is fine, but accuracy is final. So I think it's a, a combination of this that's important. It's that combination of speed and accuracy. And I, I see that quite a bit on the range. I'll see guys and girls who are really accurate and they'll just print groupings and cut paper. And then I'm trying to tell them, okay, let's speed it up. You can speed it up. You got all the skills and they, they don't want to, you know, they don't want to go away from that perfect grouping and, and they're so proud of it. And, and I am too when I do a perfect grouping, but let's put this in context it doesn't matter if it's the size of my fist or my hand opened up in a chest. 
in a defensive situation. That's all good. I don't need to put it all in, in a quarter. So, so they're not using all, uh, they're not speeding it up and, and they're risking their lives if they're not speeding it up because they, they have the skills and they could do it. So, so it's, it's, I think it's that balance. It's really a balance uh, of, of both. Yeah, absolutely. And for, for the, anybody listening here who doesn't, uh, has never heard the term OODA loop before, um, that's, uh, it's a term, it, it means observe, orient, decide, and act. Um, and it's pretty much a staple of any type of military or law enforcement training um, and the thought process and when you're cycling through situations. So, all right, Nick. Hey, listen, man, I really, really appreciate you taking the time today. Obviously, we could go down probably a dozen or more rabbit holes. And uh, I hope if you're willing, you'll come back and, and we can talk about more topics and things like that when it comes to training. If anybody here listening wants to get a hold of you or reach out, um, is there anywhere they can do that? Yeah, sure. I've got a uh, LinkedIn uh, account. So just uh, head on to Nick Brazo on LinkedIn and you'll find my uh, my coordinates, my bio and uh, just uh, reach out. I'll be I'll be happy to uh, help you the best I can if I, if I don't have the answer, because as I said before, I'm a permanent student. If I don't have the answer, I'll certainly find it somewhere. That's awesome. Yeah. And we'll definitely link that to the show notes page. Um, so anybody here listening, you can uh, check it out in the, the show description or on the show notes page on the website. Before we uh, end it here, Nick, is there anything that uh, you want to leave uh, as kind of a lasting reminder for anybody who's been listening today? Well, just, uh, you know, you need to ask yourself uh, as many questions as possible and try to get the, get the, the answers from different sources and cross-reference them. So, what are your, your law enforcement, security, military, and uh, there, there's a doctrine being, uh, being proposed, and this is how we do things. Ask the question why. It's not to be that, that guy, you know. It, it's to really, you want to know, okay, why are we doing this, and where does this come from? And the, the OODA loop is a, is a good, uh, is a good uh, point there you made, and uh, John Boyd and you know, okay, search it out and look at look it up, and figure out okay what what is it about and how is it applicable to to my sp- sphere of activity. So stay curious. I think is one of the big ones. Stay curious, informed, and uh, never stop learning. Awesome, man. Listen again. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Hey, thanks for having me, Adam. It's a pleasure. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on the Tactical Breakdown. And thank you, Nick, again for joining us. Nick is a very busy guy, and he took the time to sit down and talk with us today. And I just want to say thank you to him. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. I hope you're finding the conversations interesting and entertaining and that the information that you're getting is going to be actionable so that you can use it out in the field. Thank you again for joining us at the Tactical Breakdown, and remember, stay safe.